Hello. Hi, Serena. How are you? Great. Exhausted. But great. <laughs> Me too. But I'm looking forward to this year. Yeah, this is that talk, isn't it? Little brain organoids. Oh, I'm sitting here talking on mute. Oh, <laughs> were you talking? I'm sorry. Yeah, I said, so this is that talk, little brain organoids. Huh? Yep, exactly. I had to submit a proposal today. It was due. Right. How did it go? Well, I don't know. The organizer is really enthusiastic. So that's great. Yeah. And they have also the power of decision or? It's her portfolio. Yeah. So that's good perfect. to have. <laughs> it's good to have her enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. Because when you go to NIH, right? It's always quite annoying because the program officers, they love the ideas, but then they are actually not always the decision making. Oh, hi, Allison. Hi, Dr. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. Is it Murtry? Yes, How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Great. It's a interesting day. So been looking forward to this talk too. Super. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I'll, I'll check here if I have access to, to these slides. Um, thank you, Katerina, for, for putting the link in here. Make it very easy. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, please check everyone if I if it worked to change the access. And yeah, we are looking forward to this. Thank you for making the time. Super. Yeah, I have it in here. <clears throat> How's your week so far? almost summer <laughs> yeah i'm uh, in a study section for nih when i joined you guys were just discussing nih so oh. <laughs> it's been busy days serena just submitted a project that we've been discussing a lot it's mostly her project but we have been like together discussing this for a bunch of time so she just submitted that's what i was asking if they are the program person actually has power of decision because at NIH I feel like the program officers like totally love it but then like the <laughs> committee trashes it sometimes. <laughs> right this was from the actual portfolio manager and it's internal money instead of federal so um, but it's about astrocytes so it could be really fun. Yeah it's amazing I, I love the project so 
all my fingers and toes are crossed and <laughs> Oh, incidentally, I'm known for always asking astrocyte questions. Oh, I, I, I love astrocytes. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's my new fascination. So. <laughs> Yeah, hey, and good luck, Katarina, with your submission. Oh, it's Serena. Like Serena submitted it today. Like um... I think I said Serena, or did I say Katarina? Oh, I'm so sorry. I think I I'm... said I think I said hello what? everyone, and then I said, I'm honored. I think I don't know. It's hot here now. I don't know. What I'm honored for the confusion, Victoria. <laughs> Congratulations, everyone, and what? And nice to see you, everyone. Um. I forgot what, what I was saying, doesn't matter. <laughs> it was not important. Um, yeah, we'll start in around five minutes, everyone. Uh, mm -hmm. Welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time. If you wanna comment without coming here up to the stage, feel free to use the chat um, to comment or ask a question. We can read them also out loud. Or just if you have questions, raise your hand and and join us on the stage. So, Dr. Mucci, I first came across this. It was a just a blurb, you know, a news flash, and we got to talking about it. And um, you know, the write-up was a little sensational. So, very curious what really happened. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to solve all your questions. <laughs> well, that can be a tall order at times. Yeah, um, we'll have for sure an interesting discussion. And, um... and and I'll I'll, I'll make sure I'll, I'll do this very easily, um, and we can have like plenty of time for discussion. Or if you guys decided to go in deep into a specific aspect, then then we can talk. But I'm prepared to give like an overview of um, the findings on, on on the paper and how I or or we here in the lab are branching out uh, to different applications. Where I think is going to be um, interesting for. Um, for people, there is always some some something for everyone. I wanted to make a really bad joke. <laughs> is it okay? Is it too early for a joke? <laughs> Will you please make a really bad joke? Yeah, it's been you know, properly disclaimed. You know, in their egg. No, it used to be like. Um, in Germany, a joke when you try to like it when you have something for everyone. The commercial used to be, you know, you have a surprise and you have chocolate and you have something to build. <laughs> well, anyways, doesn't work if you don't know. <laughs> Can you try that again? I want to get it really badly. So the commercial used to be for the Kinder eggs, you know, the ones oh, yeah, that yeah, you yeah, choke yeah. on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> in Europe. 
that you'll have some chocolate, you have a surprise, and you have something to build. So that the kidna egg has something for everyone. Right. And so this room is yeah, like a kinder egg? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I love that analogy. <laughs> this is a kinder egg. Kinder I, I love that chocolate. <laughs> it's great, right? It's it, it's Italian. It's not German, actually. Kinder is Ferrero, and Ferrero is Italian, like Nutella. I didn't know that. And Ferrero and stuff yeah it's not German it's very popular there I think that's why people think it's true I don't even know I think they made it specifically some stuff for the market there I just remember um, when I lived there for a short time that it was believed that chocolate is an important part of every child's diet. I mean, of course it is, but that there, that chocolate has these nutrients that every child needs to grow. And um, that was part of their promotional campaign. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like, eat your chocolate. Yeah, and the Nutella, that's it's a perfect breakfast because it has nuts and it has chocolate and and you know like palm wax yeah they use <laughs> palm kernel oil okay i think we can slowly start and um yeah it's it's nine o'clock uh yep so yep let's start welcome everyone to the science society thank you so much uh for coming and of course a special thanks to our guest speaker, um, Dr. Alison Motri. Um, and let me introduce you um, to the audience. So um, Dr. Motri is a professor at the Department of Pediatrics and Cellular and Molecular Medicine at the UC San Diego. And he's also the director of the Stem Cell Program and Archaeization Center. He did his uh, Bachelor in Science in uh, Biological Sciences um, at the State University of Campinas in, um, and his PhD in Genetics uh, at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he moved to the SOC Institute um, as a Pew Latin American Fellow uh, for his postdoctoral training in the field of neuroscience and stem cell biology. Um, and as you can pr um, maybe assume from the title, his research focuses on brain evolution and modeling of neurological diseases using induced pluripotent stem cells and brain organoids. He has received several awards, including the prestigious NIH Director's New Innovator Award, a NARSAT Emerald Foundation Young Investigator Award, a Surugadai Award Rockstar of Innovation, <laughs> NIH Eureka Award, and two Tele Awards for Excellence in Science Communication, among several others. So uh, it's really a great honor to have you here today. 
and uh, if it's okay with you, Victoria will ask you first a few general questions and then the stage is yours for the presentation. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you, Katarina, and welcome, Alison. We're so excited to hear about your work and to give a, a bit of a background to you as a person and to hear a bit more beyond your work my question to you is can you look back in your life and think of a moment or experience during which you noticed that you felt a connection to science that that really spoke to you and let you know that science was something that was particularly interesting to you? Yeah, uh, I, I think, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I was uh, in a family that was always pointed out that I was very cu curious. Um, so they defined me as the scientist of the family. So even before I realized that, they were already seeing some of the curiosity aspect. Um, but I think the moment that I, that I feel that was uh, probably like a realization was uh, when I, I was trying to understand what happens when you um, switch on uh, the lights. And my first uh, impression was that um, the bulb uh, was there to suck it out the darkness. Uh, and that's how light was appearing. Um, of course, it was a, a different perspective, um, but it took me a while to figure out exactly how that worked. Um, and, and I think then I started explaining to people how it actually worked. So it's not like that it's like the darkness. Um, and, um, and I think that was the moment that I realized that, well, I mean, I can research, I can find the right answers and I can explain um, what happens. I mean, what a simple phenomenon that people do it every day, um, but nobody exactly knows how it works. So I think that was a moment that I realized, mm, I can do that as a, as a profession. That is the most amazing story. <laughs> we never, you know, I just think how many times people, you know, you see people, even a child the first time, turning on and off a light and, and to hear what was actually going on in your mind is, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's precious. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, and then, yeah, I can see that you, your family and you as well. And I, well, your family, it sounds like they encouraged you and that's really powerful, but you also noticed yourself, you know, it sounds like you were reveling in your own curiosity and, and wanted to, um, you know, it motivated you to continue. I love mm -hmm. that story. Um, I have another question for you, which is, can you discuss your path? from you know maybe that that light switch your light bulb moment to your current research what brought you to where you are today and thank yeah, you sure. yeah no thank you these are great questions um uh my path was um was kind of a, a not not really like a, a straight line um i was actually um because of this experience and others i was really drawn to physics um so i actually started um on, on physics, um, but then I realized that it becomes too theoretical and I wanna do something that was uh, more experimental. So I turned into biology. Um, and within biology, I always uh, was fascinated by the brain, thinking that the brain similar to the universe, um, there is so much to understand. Um, so after the graduation, um, I decided to do like a, a, a 
uh, a PhD in human genetics. I was always fascinated by genetics. And then um, for a postdoc, I decided to, to do on neurosciences because that was something that I could not find uh, in Brazil. There was um, not like a strong neuroscience community over there, uh, especially at the molecular and cellular level. And most of the neuroscience community in Brazil, and this is true for South of America, um, deals more with behavior in animals. So I, I really want to understand how the human brain worked. And that's, that's what motivates me to move to California taking advantage of uh, the human embryonic stem cell research that was going on. Um, this was early 2000s, and, um, and then I decided to stay. Yeah, so that, in a, in a nutshell, that, that's how it worked. Okay, so you're sure it wasn't the sun? It was really the interest in the human brain? Yep. yep. <laughs> okay, yeah, thank you. Um, I, it's surprising how many people talk about the change in their path and you know maybe it was their own interest that that um inspired the change or maybe it was that you know as you said you you couldn't you couldn't find what you were particularly interested in and so you you know you went and found it it's it seems like such a common thread mm -hmm. and and um yeah thank you thank you so much for your answer i i find it so interesting i work in arts education and and something that's that draws me to that is that i can give a classroom of students the same art materials and the same provocation or you know direction and everybody will you know will take it their own way and come up with something completely different and so you know this is what your your answer about that you saw that you thought the light bulb was sucking the darkness out of the room i, I think that's really worth um pondering so thank you and at this point um, thank you for your answers, and you're welcome to launch into your discussion of your work. And if you'd prefer to have your um, discuss your work and then have your question and answer following, that's great. If you'd prefer to have it um, simultaneously, then that's your choice too. And uh, we are here, Katarina, Serena, Eli, and I are here to take care of the room and order of questions and things so you can relax and enjoy delivering your talk. And thank you so much. All right, thank you. I, I think, I mean, uh, I'm new to this platform and since I'm not seeing or, or looking at uh, the chat, I'd rather have the, the, the questions at the end so I can I can go through the presentation and um, and then we can just, just discuss at, at, at the end if it's not too complicated. Fantastic, right. it's up to All right. you. Good, 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 good. All right. So, um, and uh, so this uh, this uh, this boy that you are seeing in the first slide is actually my son Ivan, um, and Ivan has a severe type of autism, um, and so he cannot uh, w uh, talk or or um, or have like a regular motor coordination. He has um, several seizures a day, so his life is is very difficult one. And, and similar to, to other kids um, with autism, uh, there is nothing really you can do. There are uh, behavioral therapies, but um, not much you can do actually. Um, and this is true for other neurological disorders as well. So part of the problem is that um, some of those conditions arises by genetic mutations that start to shape how the brains form in uterus inside the womb. And, um, and we never re really had like a good model to study how the human brain is formed. Uh, most of what we have is either from postmortem tissue or, or we extrapolate from uh, animal research, um, mostly mouse. 
um, which is, I mean, very different from um, from the human brain. So that's that's why I put this uh, sentence here: "What I cannot create, I do not understand." Uh, on slide two, meaning that um, uh, the idea would be to recreate the human brain from scratch, uh, so we can understand um, when the process goes wrong. And um, when I started my lab back in 2008, there was a, a publication from Yoshiki Sasai here on slide three um, that uh, shows that if you neuralize human embryonic stem cells in suspension, they will form uh, uh, what we now call brain organoids um, and they will self-aggregate and form these very nice um, structures that resemble the human fetal brain. So when I saw that paper, I said, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I need. Um, and I'll, 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 I'll establish that model in my lab. Um, so that was uh, in 2008. The technology was not uh, the best. The method was not super reproducible. Um, so we have different protocols that are much better now to create brain organoids. Um, so that's, uh, but before I continue, uh, I want to make sure that a brain organoid is not a mini brain a dish. Um, so we have this slide here with some of the limitations of the technology. Um, these are immature neurons. The organoids are not vascularized. We don't have all cell types represented. Uh, and even basic fundamental things like the media that we grow these organoids are not ideal. Um, we mostly borrow from mouse embryology. And, and that's one of the first things that we decided to do was to optimize the conditions to grow cells, mostly because the Sasai protocol and, and many others that we try um, don't actually generate functional neurons. I mean, you, you have spikes here and there, but they were not really connecting and forming networks. And um, we realized soon that this was due to um, different in, um, uh, in, 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 in the osmolarity inside the media. By just adjusting a little bit the salt or using the, 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 the right media, you can solve that and the neurons start to fire. Um, so we created this uh, recipe uh, to generate a human cortical brain organoids. And this was a couple of years ago. A very simple protocol. You start with single cells. You neuralize them in suspension. You stimulate the growth of the progenitor cells, and then you just remove the growth factors, and they um, they will self-aggregate, uh, uh, form connections, and and um, and and they start to mature. Um, so if you cross-section one of these brain organoids, and I have a, a figure here of one of these cross-section. Um, you can see that you have ventricular zone um, uh, formed from uh, neural rosettes, and um, the progenitor cells uh, will migrate from inside to the outside um, using the radioglia cell process that here in, in white to form the cortical plate. And as you mature, the diversity of those neurons um, increase, and um, you have different cell types. And actually, um, on the next slide here, brain organoids at four months, what I have is a very simple schematic of a snapshot of the cell types from um, single cell RNA-seq. Uh, what kind of cells do I have there? I started with single cells um, and I end up with about 5 million cells in, inside these organoids. Um, so at four months, most of uh, the cells are still uh, proliferating. You still have uh, progenitor cells, a pool of progenitor cells in there. Um, they are giving rise to uh, excitatory neurons here in blue. These excitatory neurons start to form the upper and lower cortical plate. You can see that the population is start to started to uh, to divide there. Uh, and at that stage, um, the uh, potency of these progenitor cells start to shift 
um, to glia cells, so they start to form um, astrocytes. So astrocytes actually appear uh, here in red um, when um, the organoids, um, I mean, they, we always have like a little bit of astrocytes throughout the process, but really become uh, more prominent when they are about uh, four months of age. And as you age these organoids, the population of astrocytes inside will become one-to-one -to, -one to neurons. So half of the organoid will be composed by astrocytes when they are about six months of age. Um, at that stage, uh, we start to see um, markers of GABAergic neurons uh, here in orange. Uh, I want to point out that um, single cell RNA-6 is, is expression marker. So the expression of the markers are there. It doesn't mean that they are working as interneurons at that stage. Um, so they express GABA receptors, but um, they are not yet inhibitory neurons. They will become inhibitory neurons. Um, in, uh, uh, in, in, in when they are about uh, six months um, to seven months of age. And um, you see that um, all these, uh, the merging of these populations really goes well with uh, the electrophysiology recordings that I'm going to show you later in the talk. Um, but before that, I mean, most of the um, papers on organoids were really focusing on structural abnormalities, cell migration, um, uh, proliferation, apoptosis, and um, so that's why I put this image of the um, the Zika virus here. This is a baby infected with the Zika virus. You can see that it becomes microcephalic. This is one of the contributions from my lab. Um, we uh, were aware about uh, the outbreak of the Zika virus in Brazil, and we got the virus. And initially, um, we failed to reproduce the microcephaly. Uh, phenotype in mouse was only when exposed them to the brain organoids that we saw a reduction in the cortical plate by the fact that the virus was killing intermediated neuroprogenitor cells. Um, the reason that I like to show these slides is that once we have the right tool um, that we just prove causation, we use that tool to screen drugs that could actually block uh, the viral replication, and this is a repurposed drug called sofosbuvir, sofosbuvir um, and, um, and it also blocks the vertical transmission from mom to fetus. Now, if you have a pregnant woman that is infected with Zika virus, you could um, eventually use this drug and uh, the baby uh, will be born without the virus. So this is um, two years from causation to solve the problem. So that's why I think if you have the right tool, um, you can you can um, make like huge advances um, on, 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 on the biomedical front. Um, you might ask why we didn't see initially the, um, the phenotype in mouse, and it's because the mouse brain develops uh, super fast. Uh, it doesn't give the chance for the Zika virus to kill the progenitor cells. Uh, in 22 days, you already have like a fully formed mouse brain, and it takes nine months uh, for the human brain to be fully formed. So this is low development, allow us to detect the phenotypes by the Zika virus. All right, but these are structural damages, uh, macrocephaly, uh, things like that. Um, and I started by saying that I want to study autism and, 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 and conditions of the networks. And um, so we decided to test if our protocol could generate neural networks, sophisticated networks. And the way we do that is by placing these organoids on top of a multi-lecular race. Um, so I'm, I'm now on a slide where I have the organoid sitting on top of one of these arrays. You can see the electrodes from the bottom. 
um, and they um, start capturing the electrical activity over time. So it's actually the only technology that you can measure the networks longitudinally. Um, so we cannot do that with patch clump. You cannot do that with um, uh, uh, calcium dyes, for example. You have to use the multi electrode array. And that's why we, we choose that technology. So you could see what happens over time. And um, on this uh, microscopic, microscopic scale uh, slide here, I have um, just images of the raster plots with all the electrodes over time. So you can visualize um, that um, eventually you see some synchronization of these electrodes, meaning that um, they start to fire together. And as we age the organoids, um, we see nested uh, oscillatory behaviors um, within some of these um, uh, circuitries, uh, suggesting that they are reaching a level of complexity um, as we would expect it for something like the human cortex. So we are moving from 3,000 spikes per second to something that is close to 300,000 spikes per second. Um, so this was uh, unprecedented in, in tissue culture. And uh, when my postdoc um, showed show me this result for the first time, I said, you are wrong. Um, nobody could actually cross this uh, five hertz uh, threshold with organoids. So um, I'm here on a slide where you see the mean firing rate over time. And I plotted some of the work um, that was previously done uh, on 2D. Most of this work um, reaches a level of five hertz. You can even see the organoid from Paola Lota at uh, 16 and 32 uh, uh, months, uh, 32 weeks, sorry. Um, and they also don't cross this five hertz threshold. Um, the graphic in red is our, um, the line in red is our organoid, weekly measure of um, an average of eight organoids over time. And you can see that we get close to this 20 hertz when the organoids are about uh, 40 weeks or nine months, which is um, similar to a primate um, or, or even a human brain um, that would fire that stage. Um, so even though the organoid doesn't have all the same um, number of neurons, it doesn't have the same organization of the human brain, but we are reaching the same level of activity that we'd expect for um, a nine-month-old uh, um, primate brain, which was amazing. And I was giving like a similar talk here at UCSED um, when someone from Cognitive Neurosciences, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Brad Wojtek, which I highly recommend you to uh, to invite to speak, uh, he said, well, I mean, if you have that level of activity, you should, you should see neural oscillations. Um, and neural oscillations are the neural correlates of cognition. Um, so this is what cognitive neurosciences has been used, um, all these different frequencies or, or neural oscillations uh, to match human cognition. And, and, and we, molecular and cellular biologists, um, we could never make the connection with cognition because we are so far away. So we cannot tie the cell types, ion channels, things like that, with a movement, memory, and sleep because it's so far apart. Um, so if the organoids will show neural oscillations, that might be the first step towards the understanding of human cognition with an in vitro model. And, um, and that was really powerful. So I, I thought, well, I don't think this is gonna happen, but um, long story short, and that's uh, uh, the paper that you guys discussed, um, we start to see some of these neural oscillations when the organoids are about four months. Remember, four months is when we see the proliferation of the astrocytes. 
Um, uh, at six months, uh, there is no doubt that these oscillations were there. You can actually see very synchronized um, oscillatory behavior. And by eight months, uh, remember eight months is when those GABAergic neurons start to become inhibitory. Um, you start to see the complexity of these networks with um, overlapping peaks of these neural oscillations showing different frequencies of activity inside these organoids. So that was kind of a, a shocking for us to see. To be honest, I was never expected that an in vitro system um, would um, go to that level. And um, so, uh, of course, we send it to nature, right? I mean, that's what you do when you have a data like that. And um, to my surprise, um, the reviewers um, said, well, I mean, it's very nice, very um, uh, unprecedented that you guys have these neural oscillations, but um, how similar is that to the human brain? <laughs> and I don't know if you guys can notice, but uh, the question it is that the reviewers were asking us um, is to record um, from a healthy human fetus um, their electrical activity. So that's an unethical um, experiment. Um, so we, we told them we cannot do that. that. That's impossible. We don't have that ability. Um, there is no machine that um, is no invasive that can record from the human fetus. Um, so there's no way we can present that data. So they rejected the paper. Um, but we, uh, we had a, a way around it. Um, it's not perfect, but it's something that um, we decided to do it anyways, what, which was um, to compare with EEGs of preterm babies. As you know, the babies that are born prematurely will show um, some of oscillations if you put um, the uh, EEG cap on, on their heads. And um, I'm, I'm on this slide here with the baby and the EEG cap. Um, the behavior of these uh, oscillations is very similar uh, to the organoids. But the question was how similar they were. So we created this machine learning algorithm uh, where we trained the machine to um, find the age of the subject based on EEG features. And we can use like two or three EEG features um, and, and, and the machine um, can guess uh, right what is the age of uh, the human brain. So once the machine was fully trained, we start feeding the organoids um, on the machine, the data coming from the MEA to the machine. And we ask, can the machine predict the age of the organoid? So this is very unbiased. The machine doesn't know if it's analyzing the human brain or a brain organoid. And um, on the next slide, um, you have these oscillatory dynamics in cortical organoids that mimic the bursting phenomenon in EEG. Um, so that's, that's actually uh, one of the most um, uh, satisfying moment uh, in the lab when we see that the trajectory of the organoids um, mimics the trajectory, trajectory of the human brain based on EEG um, starting at 25 weeks uh, old. So um, before that, uh, the correlation is bad, uh, mainly because, again, we don't have uh, human data before 25 weeks. Most of the premature babies uh, would not survive um, if you are born that early. But after 25 weeks, the trajectory of the organoids really matches in terms of neural oscillations, uh, what we see in the human brain. So, um, this, is, um, so this was uh, the paper and, and the history behind it. So where we are now, so we are adding um, input and output to further mature these networks. And one of the input and output that we thought was uh, to add um, uh, sensory stimulation, such as the visual system. Um, when, when you are born after nine months, so you open your eyes and you start to receive all this visual stimulation. 
So we team up with um, Carl Walling, who does this retina uh, organoid, and um, we created this uh, three-way um, uh, uh, assembloid um, uh, where we have the retina uh, sending projections through the thalamus and innervating or reaching the cortex. And you can visualize the whole process uh, because we put re uh, 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 reporters. So the, um, uh, the, the, the photoreceptors are here in green and uh, the axon projections are here in, in red. Um, so we are maturing these structures um, to soon start to stimulate uh, with a visual stimulus to see if we can actually record from the cortex. And then there's a series of experiments that we are preparing to do um, to see, for example, if the cortex will remember uh, a specific stimulus af after some time, or if the cortex will rearrange um, to become a visual cortex instead of an empty canvas. Um, so that's that's one way to, to add stimulation. The other way, and now you should be on the slide where you have this uh, um, uh, spider uh, uh, monkey, spider robot with a fluid uh, behind or with a, a human brain floating in there. Um, for the ones who like science fiction, you might recognize this. Um, this is uh, from Star Trek um, where the monks um, when they reach a level that are, are kind of uh, uh, transcendental, they decided to remove themselves from the human body so they don't feel um, the same needs as uh, the human body needs. Um, and they are connected to a machine that just carried these uh, brains around and they can communicate and continue to um, evolve mentally without the limitations of the physical body. So. I remember that episode and I said, well, I mean, what we need is something like that is an embodiment for the organoid uh, that doesn't belong to um, mimicking the biology, which, which is really cool, but very difficult to do it. So we decided to um, attach the organoids to a, to, to a robot body. So what you see here is actually a video. Um, and, and, and I have those um, on some of those in, in the internet. So we are teaching this robot um, how to walk and how to coordinate these um, four legs, um, uh, how to walk through an environment using uh, these uh, infrared sensors that look like an eye, uh, but these are infrared sensors to stimulate the organoid as it finds an obstacle. So the way it works is a, it's a feedback closed loop where the robot starts to walk as soon as it sees um, is a, a, a wall or an obstacle, a, uh, the sensors will stimulate the organoid. Um, the stimulation changes these networks um, and uh, the computer perceive these uh, changes in network and send a second command to the robot such as walk back. Um, so we are in the early stages of that, um, but the goal is uh, to see if we can actually um, perhaps record some uh, memories and have some um, type of any type of learning, uh, even associative learning from these organoids, that would be um, something that we are interested to see how the organoids will respond to that. Um, going back to the biomedical applications, uh, my lab has been generating organoids from several uh, genetic disorders. I have here on the slide a pipeline for ASD brain organoids. There are uh, I think we are we, we have about 17 or, or, or 20 types of uh, genetic alterations that are linked to autism spectrum disorders. And we use those not only to create organoids, but to do drug testing or in case of monogenetic disorders to test for a potential gene therapy. 
a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm not sure if you guys were aware, but um, we just um, were able to do that for Pete Hopkins disease um, and, and show a strategy to correct uh, the gene inside these organoids, uh, reversing not only the structural damage, uh, but also the electrophysiological alterations that these organoids had. Um, and um, I'm, I'm glad to announce that uh, the technology was licensed by a gene therapy company, and um, we are starting to do the testing now um, uh, to move into clinical trials, so making sure that the vectors are safe, things like that. All right, so um, another application that we have in the lab is this is um, a long interest of me, of, 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 uh, of myself on, on the human brain, the origins of the human brain, the evolution of the human brain. And as um, you probably know, uh, we were not the only humans that, that have been on Earth. Um, most of uh, the other humans um, we know a little bit, uh, but the Neanderthals are the ones that, that we know uh, the most. And um, it's interesting that the Neanderthals have been on Earth longer periods uh, than us. And, and, and during these longer periods, if you see the slides of arts, technology, and adaptation, you're going to see that they start with stone tools and they end with stone tools. And we, modern humans, we start with uh, stone tools and we are now here having this conversation using technology. So we can do um, uh, in, a, in, in a very different scale uh, something that no other species could do, even the Neanderthals that are so close to us. So the question is why? Why that? Why the human brain can do that? So we postulate the following hypothesis, that uh, there are positive selection on specific genes that might have resulted in a more sophisticated brain. So what we decided to do was to align the genome of uh, our um, uh, ancestrals, such as uh, the Neanderthals and the Nisovans, um, and, and look for genes that, are, uh, that have genetic alterations that are human, modern human-specific. And um, this was published last year. Um, we have a list of 61 uh, genes. And among those, there is one that called my attention. Um, it's a splicing factor called NOVA1. Um, it's a single base pair that differentiates us from the Neanderthals and all the other species. So what we decided to do was um, to uh, use genome editing uh, to reinsert the ancestral or the archaic version of uh, the NOVA1 back into human pluripotent stem cells, and from there, uh, make brain organoids carrying this archaic genetic ver uh, variant. So um, now uh, we made those organoids, and to our surprise, they show uh, some alterations in morphology. I'm on this slide uh, entitled Distinct Neurodevelopment. You can see through the different phases of the protocol um, the morphology that um, we have. And uh, on the archaic, the, the organoids carrying the archaic version show some alterations in cell proliferation and migration, affecting the different um, populations of cell types inside the organoids. And that's why they have this um, uh, weird um, shape we call the popcorn shape because it, it's not rounded. Um, but to me, the interesting aspect is when we place those organoids on, on top of multilateral arrays, and um, we saw some very interesting alterations in networks, very different from modern humans, the archaealized version of NOVA1 forces the um, organoids um, to speed up maturation. So they actually start to fire much earlier, they start to synchronize much earlier, um, but after a while, 
um, they start to lag behind and the modern humans um, start to take over. So that's very similar to what we see um, with uh, neurons derived from chimpanzees and bonobos iPSCs. Um, so that single base pair um, uh, that was positively selected in the human population, um, it's enough uh, to make uh, those cortical neurons to behave more like uh, a chimpanzee. Um, and we can discuss uh, implications for that as well. All right. So the other thing that we like to do in the lab is to imagine how uh, evolution would be if we could speed up human evolution or, or accelerated using the same genetic tools. So the same way that we are looking into our past, we could perhaps um, create something that evolution didn't have the chance or the opportunity yet to even create or test. Uh, but we can do that in the lab with these organoids. So we are accelerating human evolution by looking at regions that are highly polymorphic um, and see if we can create brain organoids that would be perhaps more resistant to Alzheimer's. Um, perhaps uh, with different types of synapses, uh, perhaps with different shapes or, or geometric um, shapes that uh, is not restricted to our um, endocast. Um, so these might create very interesting networks that could be used for different things. Um, so this is um, one of uh, the uh, uh, experiments that we have. And, and, and that idea uh, was uh, what inspired me to start growing some of the organoids uh, at the International Space Station. Um, so um, we were inspired by the NASA twins experiments. Uh, you can actually see here a summary of uh, the findings for the NASA twins experiments in one of these slides. And you can see um, that there is a systemic alteration in um, the physiology of the different tissues of the astronaut. So being on microgravity for a long period of time um, doesn't do you good. It's actually very detrimental to your health um, and including co cognitive decline. Some of these alterations will go away. Uh, you can revert those, uh, but not all. There are some alterations that uh, stays there for life. Um, so um, our idea was um, uh, try to use brain organoids to understand how uh, this uh, space environment can actually change um, the physiology of neurons. Um, since we cannot do that with astronauts. So on, those image, on the image on the next slide, what you have is a shoebox that we send with um, organized to the International Space Station. So it's a, it's a box that was uh, designed uh, to carry the organoids and to feed them autonomously um, for one month. So the only thing that the astronaut has to do is to plug inside one of these uh, cabinets in the background and um, give us full access to what's going on inside um, the uh, mini incubator that we have in there, including a microscope camera. So we can, we can visualize uh, the growth of these organoids in microgravity. Um, we continue with those experiments. Uh, the first uh, flight was um, generated like an, an amazing data that suggests accelerated aging. We see signs of um, inflammation very early on and, um, and also alterations in, in, in the telomeres. Um, so we want to uh, repeat those experiments <clears throat> and uh, that will give us some uh, applications on Earth. Uh, for example, future missions uh, will take um, brain organoids derived from people with Alzheimer's or, or dementia, um, where we hope to see uh, phenotypes that would be impossible um, to see here on Earth uh, by doing that. 
So we think that not only we can um, use those experiments to provide a mitigation strategy for astronauts or interplanetary colonization, but we can also uh, help uh, health here on Earth by creating a model of accelerated aging. Um, so I'm glad to announce that we do have a large grant from NASA now uh, where we have a dedicated space inside the space station um, where we can um, perform these experiments. Uh, our next mission is actually um, going now on, on June 9. Uh, so this is our third mission um, with brain organoids. So that's um, in a nutshell, that's what I had. Um, I, I, I just touched on, on these different projects, but again, I'm happy to, to talk more in deep on, on, on any of those issues. Um, these are my take home messages. Um, I think there are different protocols to, to make human brain organoids. If you are interested in this technology, uh, it's a good idea to know the pros and cons of each one of these protocols. They are not the same, they're not made the same. Um, the organoids, they show similarities at the molecular, cellular, and anatomical level with the feet of human brain. So this is also something that I, uh, I see people um, uh, making confusion. So we are not mimicking a more adult human brain, a more formed human brain. Instead, we are mimicking early stages of neurodevelopment. Um, and I show you the electrophysiology signature that mimics this uh, preterm neonatal human brain. Um, it's still unclear if that it follows the same mechanism. We, we continue to investigate that. Um, and I present you with uh, several applications of brain organoids to understand human development, brain evolution, disease modeling, drug discovery, toxicology. And, um, and we have even other projects that are, uh, that are going on. So um, I'm finishing here. This is an image of my lab, my funding agencies. Um, there are uh, many people that contribute to these works, and I have uh, several postdocs, grad students, uh, master's students, undergrads. Um, so the lab is a very dynamic, uh, very rich environment. And I, uh, before I finish, I also want to point it out that um, as a director of the stem cell um, program here, uh, I created the stem cell channel. So this is a um, uh, a TV show actually that that passes here in California. I'm not sure if you can if if you can watch uh, outside California, but it's is on TV. But it's also on YouTube, and this is our stem cell channel. Um, that um, not only you're going to see talks, uh, but also some some videos that we develop with um, basic concepts about um, stem cell technology. And I highly recommend the one about. Um, the consciousness in, in organoids and all the ethical implications um, that uh, these findings might have. So that's it. Um, and um, I'm available to your questions. Well, thank you so much. This was um, such an amazing talk. I'm really, totally, you should see the back channel. We were commenting like how epic your research is. I think the title of rockstar uh, scientist it's totally like you should you should own it for life. <laughs> um so um yeah I have a lot of questions. I don't want to take over too much. So um I really love the um, the robots, the brain robot work. Um are you going to did you publish this work by any chance? No, no, we, uh, this is ongoing. Um, uh, we had like some problems uh, with the stimulation of uh, the organoids, you know, 
I'll, I'll tell you what is a practical problem. Um, so right now, everything that we have has about one second delay from the stimulation to, um, uh, to response. And this is because the organoids are not exactly inside the robot yet, because when the robot starts moving, it detaches from the electrodes and, um, and lose contact. So we, we lost lots of timing there. So now we have the organoids sitting on the incubator and all the signal and decisions are transmitted wireless to the robot. Um, and, um, and that's where we are. We are just um, trying to uh, create a better way to do the stimulation that doesn't have this uh, one second gap. So we wanna be as close as possible as uh, the milliseconds that the human brain takes uh, to act upon uh, stimulation. So I'm telling you why this is so amazing to me personally, because I imagine that in the future, the easiest way to keep somebody alive, you know, based on Simpsons and Futurama, <laughs> it's probably to just keep the brain alive. We can safely be in some cave and travel the universe. So <laughs> the first step to, to going towards that future, and that's amazing. And then you also send the brains to, to NASA, which is <laughs> even much cooler. Mm. So you mentioned, well, no, actually, I'll leave that question to Serena about um, the astrocytes mm -hmm. uh, on, online. So I'll, I'll pass it on to Serena <laughs> first before I continue. Oh, well, thank you. And oh, the brain in the jar is so my retirement plan. But um, I'm just floored by this talk, I have to say. Um, and yeah, astrocytes is, is, a, is a big line. I, I'll ask just to a couple, and if we have time, we can come back to some some of the um, the other ones. But um, so early on, when you started to see synchronous firing, um, were you lo looking at what can you say about what the astrocytes um, were doing at that point, and how far into development, and were they associated with that synchronous firing? Yeah, so um, they are actually, uh, when we see the emergency of the astrocytes, when the progenitor cells become gliogenic, um, that's when we see a spike, almost exponential, on the number of synapses that are inside these organoids. Um, and we did like some EM as well. You can clearly see the astrocytes surrounding the synapses and probably helping them uh, to mature and to become active. So um, yeah. Without the astrocytes, uh, we don't see that much activity and we don't see the synchronization. Um, so they are absolutely crucial for these uh, early stages of uh, the network formation. Wow, that's just so confirming. Um, in terms of, uh, were, were, you, were you looking, are, do you have a way to monitor the calcium waves? Are the astrocytes, have they formed uh, gap junctions? Is there a syncytium there? Um, we haven't done that uh, in the organoids, uh, mainly because um, we don't want to slice them. Um, so I'm finding <laughs> ways of imaging the organoids um, using light sheet microscopy, something that doesn't destroy them. Um, and once we have that uh, set up, then, then we'll be able to do it. Uh, but for example, uh, on the gene expression, yeah, we do, all, we do see all the expression of the um, uh, gap junction proteins, everything that suggests that they are there. Fascinating. Um, 
what is a um, what can you say about the astrocytes between four and six months in these organoids? Yeah, so between four and six, yeah, that's when they will um, reach the, uh, the the maturation level and 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 actually the progenitor cells start to proliferate. So from that stage, after six months, they become constant, and, and this is also something that intrigues me. Um, why the astrocytes stop growing? Why we don't have now uh, a, a two-to-one um, uh, astrocyte to neuron? So somehow they are self-regulating in terms of number and also distribution across um, the organoid. Um, so this is uh, our observations, um, and um, we don't know how to explain that, but uh, they, they are certainly intriguing um, cell type um, because they can do that. We are now starting to add microglia in these organoids and um, the microglia actually uh, mm. appears or, or we add the microglia before the astrocytes and the interplay between the microglia and neurons and, and astrocytes is very interesting. We are working on a publication with uh, very interesting results. Oh, that's right, because the microglia at some point, at least in rat development, they have to prune out synapses, right? Yep, yep. And in humans as well, they actually penetrate the brain uh, very early on uh, when the brain is about one one month and a half, there are already microglia in there. Um, and mm -hmm. you can see that the astrocytes will take uh, a while until they, um, they, they appear there. So we are trying to mimic that in our in vitro system. Now, is there, there's not vasculature here, right? That's how do they eat? Yeah. So there is no vascular. Um, uh, they are in suspension, um, and everything that happens is through diffusion. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what limits their growth. Um, they stop when they are about 0.5 centimeter in diameter, and this is more or less when they are about six months of age. So we don't see more growth. Um, and actually, if you keep these organoids um, alive uh, for several years, uh, and our record is about three years. Uh, and you slice them, you're going to see that the center will eventually become necrotic. Um, so it's, it's all about diffusion. Um, in my lab and others, we are uh, trying different ways to vascularize um, with a perfusion system, um, these organoids, so we can grow them bigger. Uh, but we're not quite there yet. Okay, um, if we have time later, I'll come back. I'll let the, some other people ask questions. Yeah, I want to follow up. Oh, thank you. Sorry, sorry. I'm too excited about this. So I wanted to ask, we had the um, artificial womb um, talk here uh, from mice that went almost um, to the end of um, gestation. They started rotating um, the embryos at some point because they said um, in order to uh, achieve this through diffusion and that the embryo won't die, they had to switch I forgot that which week um, or which day um, they had to switch to a rotating device. Do you think that would help your organites to grow? They they are they are uh, in an orbital shape, oh, okay. um, so they are always on uh, in, in a movement, and I think that's what helps them to have the nutrients um, uh, accessible um, and also avoid them to fuse because we grow like um, thousands of them at the same time. Um, so they need to be in an orbital shaker. So that definitely helps. But um, again, I mean, we still need the vascularization if you want to move away from uh, from this very simplistic model and, and grow like a bigger organoid.
could you grow like mesh in between like make tiny tubes basically um very small <laughs> ones yeah <laughs> that, that's more or less, yeah one, <laughs> one of the ideas is, is, is something like that yeah we uh, we create like um this is a collaboration with the bioengineer team here um we created these assistitial uh, vases um full of endothelial cells that are perfusable um, and then we grow the organoids surrounding them, um, hoping that um, eventually all these uh, matrices that we use uh, will dissolve and go away and uh, we'll have like really good um, vascular system throughout uh, these organoids. So that's, that's definitely one of the ideas. Yeah, because we had the guest speaker here that found this new lung cells that is for mostly for gas exchange, uh, responsible for gas exchange, like a subcategory. Uh, maybe, did you think about mixing in um, these um, bronchi lung cells that are there for gas exchange and diffuse stuff quite efficiently? Mm, I never thought about that. That's a great idea. I'll check it out. Yeah, so we have a lot of cool talks. And <laughs> yesterday we actually... <laughs> Not like yours, but no, we had, <laughs> I'm kidding. No, but um, we had yesterday a brain evolution uh, scientist here. I don't know if you know, he's at uh, Nashville, in Nashville at the uh, Vanderbilt University. He looks at the default mode network uh, throughout evolution and how they are connected. And they he found that humans have a very specific um, one that is very different from other animals. So they basically, the default mode network connects um, far away um, mm. brain regions more efficiently, um, basically. So, mm. yeah, I think like Serena mostly, but I agree with her that we think that, yeah, astrocytes are really important um, for that. So do you think, it was a long led to the question, do you think that with um, the input stimulation from the robots, do you see a difference maybe that the ratio of astrocytes versus neurons uh, starts shifting because of that input and motivation maybe to grow more? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the preliminary data that we have is that the input um, actually helps to accelerate uh, the network. So the neurons start to mature a little bit earlier than uh, if it's let alone. Um, and, uh, but we don't know uh, the mechanisms. Um, so we don't know if it's through the astrocytes or, 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 or just the polarization of the neurons. Um, we we'll definitely know because we're doing like gene expression and, and some histology. So if there is something about um, a differential cell population that perhaps um, a different type, subtype of astrocytes or even more astrocytes will just appear because of the stimulation, we will see, we will detect that. Um, Mustafa, did you want to say something? Go ahead. Um, yeah, please flash your mic if you want to say something. Dr. Shah, go ahead. Yes, thank you so much. Such a fascinating, I mean, work. And my question is about, uh, I mean, three-dimensional brain organoid shapes. 
And you just talk about the, I mean, multiple large scale structures. And I was just wondering if you want to consider the timeline from the, I mean, not that timeline that you just mentioned, if we want to start from the two weeks, which is the plane just forming. So is that make a difference because we know that uh, we have a problem later on from the cell to cell interference. And I was just wondering what is your prediction if we just change the timeline from, for example, two weeks to 20 weeks? Mm. Um, that, that, I don't know. I think, I think it will, I, uh, but I don't know if it's going to be that dramatic, uh, but, uh, but definitely something will do. Yeah. Uh, that, that would be my prediction that it will change. I just don't know how dramatic it will be. Um, okay. I think that makes sense. Thank you. Uh, who else has a question? Um, Mustafa, go ahead. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Professor, for this uh, brilliant uh, lecture. I try to follow your presentation carefully, even uh, if my uh, English is still very approximative. I have, if you don't mind, two questions. Mm -hmm. First one, you have uh, presented some results of your work. Can we imagine that uh, the work of your labs leads to the slowing down of aging? And the second question, uh, what would contribute to the development of your work? Is it the development of instruments, in particular uh, artificial intelligence, or the multiplication of experiments, or the discoveries of other fellow laboratories? <laughs> Thank you. Um, Mustafa, yeah, I think all the above. Um, so we definitely uh, build on top of others. I mean, we use technology that um, was uh, developed by others, observations that were developed by others. Um, we are very much interested on using uh, AI to some of these experiments. Um, we're actually already doing it. Um, and, and we're doing like two way, not only using AI, uh, but also trying to recreate a different type of AI. So one of the outcomes of the robot experiments um, is not only to look at the, um, uh, the organoid maturation, rearrangement, things like that, but also to learn how the human brain learns. So innately, um, we have uh, our brains were shaped by evolution uh, to learn um, by observation. I mean, that's, that's how um, newborn people, newborn babies actually learn. So there is something about um, this innate ability of humans to learn um, that I want to find out. Uh, so if we figure out exactly uh, how the human brain does that, we could create a novel, a novel type of uh, AI that might be more human-like. Um, so that might have like very interesting applications. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I forgot about your, your first question. Can you, can you repeat your first question? And, and you're muted. Uh, sorry. Um, my, my first question is about um, uh, your work. Uh, can we imagine th um, that your work uh, 
leads to the slowing down of aging. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I think, uh, especially with those experiments at the um, International Space Station, I think it, it, we might learn something about uh, aging that could be applied to slow aging. Um, to be honest, the Mustafa is not really my goal here. My goal is exactly the opposite, is to accelerate aging so I can have uh, an organoid that um, is a little bit more mature. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, either way, uh, you, once you learn the mechanisms, you can, you can apply to go fast or to slow it down. This is, uh, this is my idea. If you, if you found the mechanism, you can both uh, go before or after. Mm -hmm. Yep. Hello, Doctor. Thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, I was wondering if you could please answer, um, what is your favourite book that you would recommend um, on this exact kind of topic if you wanted to read more? And what was your favourite, actually, as well? That would, if, they're, if they're both the same thing, great. If there's two separate things, then also great. Thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> So um, I don't think there is a, a book yet on, on, on brain organoids and how this technology evolving. Um, um, there are maybe stem cell books that might be talking about this technology, um, but it's going so fast that I think nobody had the time yet uh, to stop and put in a book. Um, but it, 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 if I may, I mean, a different question would be what kind of a books do I read? And, um, and I'm, I, I read uh, some neuroscience books that I, I can recommend. Uh, there is one that I like. It's called The Brain from Inside Out from Georgi Buzaki. Um, he's a pope in neuroscience, and he was the one who actually helped to characterize all these neural oscillations in the brain, how they emerge, and how to study. Um, and it's a fascinating book. Uh, I also read a lot of um, uh, books related to uh, human brain evolution. Um, that is one uh, that um, uh, I, I, I think you might like. It's from Carl, Carl Zimmer, the uh, reporter from the New York Times, Life as We Made It. And um, Oh, sorry, that's not the title of the book. I don't remember. I think it's, yeah, I think it might, might be the, the title. Yeah. And, um, and he goes on about uh, all the crazy experiments that people were doing. Um, he actually, uh, the first chapter is about my lab. He came here to, uh, to interview me and, uh, and check it out with these brain organoids. Um, and he wrote about them. And I think there are lots of philosophical questions that he raises about this technology um, that uh, it's, it's important. And, and I think he puts in a, in a very nice context. Um, so, yeah. But uh, on the technology per se, I wouldn't know how to recommend no, thank you very much. Those both sound incredibly interesting. Thanks. Oh, uh, I just wanted to jump in now, um, if, if nobody else had a question. Go ahead, Mana. Um, yeah, so this talk is so awesome. I have like so many questions, but I'm trying to narrow them down. Um, <laughs> So one of the things like in the beginning of your talk, you talked about how you were able to prevent like the Zika infection. The, um, were there any other viruses that 
uh, have been that could be used to like if for in children that could be prevented like infections like there's like common it's called torches um, and uh, one of the infections is uh, CMV mm-hmm. and um, and HSV or like herpes and um, those infections do cause problems in the brain like um, were any of those viruses like prevented from also infecting um, the fetus? Uh, that, that's a great question. And, um, and yeah, uh, I mean, I, I know about uh, those viruses and how detrimental they can be, um, but I don't know if uh, this uh, same drug can actually block that. Um, um, but but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are people using this technology now to find uh, better um, antiviral molecules that could do that. Uh, the, the, the reason why uh, sofosbuvir works with the Zika virus, uh, sofosbuvir was developed uh, to inhibit the um, polymerase on the hepatitis virus. And, um, and, and, and that polymerase is very similar to the one in the Zika virus. So we just give it a try and it worked beautifully. Um, so we'll have to see if the polymerase uh, of these other viruses are similar. Um, to this one. So if, if yes, most likely will have an impact. Okay, that's awesome. And then my second question was kind of along Katrina's, um, like the brain's metabolic demands. Um, does it increase more with these organoids or is it, does it stay the same? I don't know if that question makes sense. Yeah, it makes totally sense. We are we are studying that. We are doing like a comprehensive um, metabolic panel on these organoids over time. And um, I can tell you that um, it's very dynamic. So during the proliferation phase, um, there is certain nutrients that are being consumed very fast. Um, and then kind of slow down over time. Um, and then uh, at the maturation stage when uh, the neurons are firing like crazy, yeah, they also start to consume um, the media and, and, and some of the reagents in the media really fast as well. So it, it, it changes dramatically and the metabolites that they produce also um, changes. Um, so yeah, that per se, it's, it's a whole different ball game. Um, we are applying some of the knowledge that we have to hypoglycemia. There are babies that are born uh, with hypoglycemia and um, in some cases, the doctors don't even know what to do um, and what are their consequences. Um, so we are applying this, this study to that. Wow. Uh, I'm so looking forward. Uh, like, hopefully you come back to this room. Thank you for sharing your data. Thank you. I had a question. Thank you so much for your brilliant talk, Dr. Allison. I was curious. Um, are any of your findings applicable to the SARS-2 COVID situation? And what is your favorite part of science? Yeah, they, uh, absolutely. I uh, early on started to um, test uh, how the coronavirus would affect the brain organoids. Um, early on in the pandemic, um, the neurological component was not very clear. So we were the first ones who actually um, show that the virus could infect some neurons is not is not as dramatic as the Zika virus, uh, but not only infect those neurons, but uh, reduces the number of synapses that they can form. 
and, and, and takes a long time for the brain to reestablish those um, synapses. Of course, this is all in vitro system. And at the time, um, we didn't even know that there are these uh, 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 consequences of, uh, uh, of the coronavirus to the brain. So uh, the symptoms such as fatigue or, or this fog brain um, uh, reports that some of the patients uh, report might actually be, uh, I mean, they are real. Um, and, and that might be the mechanism. It just wiped it out 50% of the cortical synapses. Um, we still don't know the mechanism. We actually think that the mechanism is through uh, astrocytes by creating an inflammatory response from the astrocytes. That's how they reduce uh, synaptogenesis in the cortex. Uh, we have a preprint on that um, uh, if you want to read more. And um, your second question about uh, the favorite part in science, um, to me, is collaboration. Uh, to be able to work on multidisciplinary teams and achieve things that were uh, impossible to do by my own. Um, so I think my work is really a reflection of different fields that I can merge um, to, uh, to answer different questions using um, stem cells or the brain organoids as a tool that is common among these different applications. Thank you so much. I agree. Cross-disciplinary is definitely the way to go. Yeah. Well, so um, to pick up on <laughs> the astrocytes, the, um, the archaeolized uh, cell line that you looked at. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm thinking back to a, a study. It was done in 2012 out of Rochester. Medical Center um, Nader Guards Group, where they they took human astrocytes and raised them in in rodents, and those astrocytes took over, and um, the animals were actually much smarter. Yep. Um, I'm curious, and you know, those astrocytes, the human astrocytes, are about 25, 24 times bigger, and three times faster at propagating your calcium waves. I'm wondering even in the difference between Neanderthals or chimpanzees um, to, you know, if, if anyone's looked at the difference in, in genetic uh, components and expression and um, would, it, would it be uh, characterizable then in your organoids to look at differences in astrocyte morphology and kinetic responses? And uh, yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, people have looked into astrocytes from other species um, that work from, I think uh, it's Steve Goldman who did that experiment in mouse, uh, clearly showed that um, not only the size, but the ability of the astrocytes to reshape the networks, um, it's species uh, dependent. Um, and, and, and there are some studies pointing that um, most of the evolution was uh, of in, between humans and chimps was not actually on neurons, but on the glia cells and astrocytes being a major um, uh, cell type that has uh, changed uh, throughout the six million years of evolution between uh, our common ancestors. So there are works on that and, and, and definitely people are following up now that they can generate astrocytes from, from other species to kind of recreate um, all the different steps in uh, in the evolution. Yeah, so this is uh, fascinating. And, and for the archaic, we do see differences in um, the astrocyte numbers on the archaic version. Um, somehow that splicing factor regulates 
the number of astrocytes in the brain and we see a reduction in astrocytes in the archaic uh, brain organoid. And that might contribute um, somehow to the alterations that we see later on in life. Now, is that they, because um, earlier, when they developed earlier, they sort of, um, they didn't mature as, as, as well. I'm looking for the right description. But there was some performance penalty, in essence, for developing too early. Um, is that operative here or? That, that is true, yeah. It's a, it's a trade-off. Um, so they do have like more uh, activity, uh, but kind of uh, the complexity um, is not there in, in, in the later time point. Um, so I think, I, think um, I, I always like to put in a context of a, of a chimpanzee because that's, that's more or less what we see with the chimpanzee um, um, uh, species where um, you need the fast maturations are probably species where you have uh, a very uh, dangerous field. Um, so those babies need to start um, becoming independent as soon as possible and definitely a chimpanzee baby out, can outsmart a human baby by far. Um, but then over time, you can see that um, human takes longer to mature, but of course we become more um, sophisticated over time. And I think that's what uh, that gene is, um, is doing, is, um, is, 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 is altering this uh, trade-off of uh, neuronal maturation. And do you identify that as a risk in attempting to speed up the aging process to get more mature, that you're altering the capabilities ultimately? Yeah, and um, uh, I mean, we don't know exactly the mechanism, um, but um, yeah, so we, we think that's, that's one of the things. Um, a follow-up experiment that we are doing is to really push these organoids to further maturation so we can get to that nine-month stage where we have the inhibitory neurons and then we can see all these neural oscillations mm -hmm. because we want to see if the oscillations are also affected. And do you, um, in some reports, I've seen that the, the calcium waves in the astrocytes are responsible for some of those, um, freaks, at least from theta to low gamma. Um, do you see that or is it, are you able to disambiguate whether it's, it's neuron processes or calcium waves and astrocytes that's generating those um, brain waves? Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. I, I couldn't do it uh, in a way that is specific to astrocytes. Um, we did for the GABAergic neurons, for example, because we have really good specific GABA inhibitors. Um, but for the astrocytes, um, I, was, um, I, I don't think we have a good pharmacology that can only block, for example, calcium wave in astrocytes. Um, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I was afraid that if we use that, we might block uh, on neurons as well, so we cannot uh, distinguish uh, the impact of astrocytes alone. Because I think there's um, there's gap junction inhibitors that um, one one study used to sort of elucidate that the theta waves went way down when gap junctions were blocked. Yeah, I think you are right. Yeah, yeah, gap junctions. Yeah, that's why you asked that question in the first place. I'll check it out. That's a good experiment. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> Please <laughs> come, come back and tell us. <laughs> Very nice. Also, what I want to see if um, organoids from chimpanzees, um, robots climb better. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So this, uh, as soon as we have the uh, the close feedback that is working properly, then you can imagine that we we can do that in different ways. Um, uh, uh, and, and testing other species is also something that we want to do. We also want to want to test these organoids on 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 drugs, right? I mean, um, can 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 we stimulate them with specific drugs? How would they react? How is learning affected by that? Um, yeah, but we need the platform first, and that's what uh, we are working on it right now. Hopefully, by uh, the end of this year, we have it done, and 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 we have a publication on that. Yeah, the the question is also really how much is the body responsible and the periphery for these abilities, or is you know the brain itself a big contributor to those different talents so mm -hmm. I, um, I don't know if it's just me but i think it's a interesting question let the are organoids with the smell sensor from mice afraid of rats <laughs> yep. And, yep yep you know these things that we think is are intrinsic but maybe if they have a different body they are just responding very differently according to the body they have. So mm -hmm. it, it will be so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I like where you're going, Katarina. I like where you're going. Very nice. <laughs> and then we can mix them all up and have superpower robots that have all the talents like eagle vision and flying <laughs> chimpanzee. <laughs> Detecting smell from a um, bloodhound dog, you know. From... <laughs> oh, you <laughs> know, on that point, do they, um, if the organoids are in contact, um, is there any noticeable interaction between them? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and that's why we keep them uh, separated because they have a, a huge tendency to aggregate and fuse. Um, if you just put uh, two organoids together in two hours, they are fused um, and they behave like one. And um, the networks um, will will double. So you increase the electrical activity, you increase the maturation of these organoids by uh, fusing them. So yeah, absolutely, we see that. Oh, so you could have chimeric organoids fuse. You can have chimeric organoids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can. We can train them differently, and they can argue with one another over the driver's seat. And then also, you know, Miguel Nicolili's lab did years ago this experiment to add a infrared sensor um, <laughs> directly into the sensory motor cortex cells of mice, and uh, the cells could perfectly fine continue doing their tactile. Uh, uh, information processing and additionally um, sensing infrared light. Um, so, you know, it should be, it's probably some mix of, you know, what type of body you have combined mm -hmm. with intrinsic, but it will be really cool to add like sensors mammals don't have and, you know, oh, there's so much to do. <laughs> I suppose, could you, um, in terms of uh, in between the fusion of the two organoids, could you then have a sort of pseudo vasculature, not vascular, but uh, mesh delivering nutrients? Yeah, uh, yeah, you, you could build something like that. Yeah, uh, and add um, 
um, a way to uh, make the nutrients available from outside uh, to the inside of these um, fused organoids. Yeah, that can be done as well. So fascinating. Um, does, does anybody else have any questions? I'm just going on here. No, you see that uh, how early is the technology? And that's what I tell my students that we are so early on in the games that uh, if you come with an idea and you try to implement, um, it, it might work. And, and, and here you go. I mean, you, you establish a new technique and a novel way of, of doing it. Um, it uh, I think this field is going to explode in the next um, a few years and, and it's, it's evolving really fast. Um, but it's still, I mean, room for... Uh, very naive experiments to be done. Um, yeah. Was there any discussion or, or exploration of microfluidics as a delivery mechanism for nutrients or, or was that just perhaps not tenable? Um, no, I think it's, it's doable. Yeah, you can, that can be built. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of anything that, uh, anybody who has done that, but I don't see why not. Other than the cost of manufacturing, of course, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So can we have in the future uh, organized backup memory system? You know, all the singularity guys. <laughs> like a, a sort of a foundation or whatever, that Apple series where you had just like this clone waiting in storage entangled uh, with your brain extra organs and other things you have there yeah that would be nice have a backup yeah, of, uh, uploading it you know to some microchip where you'd like binary kind of you know not very it maybe you have all the memory but it it probably is closer to feel like you if it's actually cells um and then yeah how ethical would it be to just have them around or yeah. have little clones robots of you walking <laughs> yeah yeah so the uh the experiment that we are doing with the visual system will tell us um if the cortex can can store uh, a memory um so we'll be able to do that even the robotic experiment will tell us uh, if the robot will, will learn something and and that might implicate some kind of short-term memory um, so these experiments are coming, and and we we'll know. Um, and I and I agree. I mean, as as we start to demonstrate more and more of those, that's when um, the ethical gray zone starts to become dark. <laughs> so and 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 we might need to kind of uh, find ways to um, ethically manipulate these organoids, uh, which might happen. Um, uh, sooner than than we imagine, I think, and we might have to give like a moral status to these organoids um, and and discuss how we're gonna uh, grow them, dispose them um, in the same way that we do it for animal models. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like an organoid retirement plan. Yeah, <laughs> but like if you know you have a high likelihood of getting Alzheimer's early on. You could imagine to train the organoid with the most important memories that you treasure, you know, your kids, the grandchildren, mm -hmm. whatnot, and, and have them implant them once you lose it or something like that. It could also be actually helpful for, 
for people that start losing memory. You know, well, we, we hurt themselves, you know, yeah. from our kids nowadays, just in mm -hmm. case, like, I don't know, maybe just me, paranoid me, but <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, you know, these companies come to you and you do you want to save your future kid's life if it gets <laughs> Of course I do. You know? <laughs> so, do you want to save your kid's memories in the future when you're old and senile? Yeah, of course I want. You know, it will be the same reaction. <laughs> Katerina, as soon as I, I start a company on this, I'm going to sell it to you. <laughs> I'll take two. I'll take two. <laughs> That's really... That's really mean. And it's so little data that you needed to narrow that down. <laughs> well, on the, um, and I'm sure you've had endless discussions on this. So on that ethical boundary, because um, I suppose, you know, that's like the practical side of getting at some kind of operational uh, definition or at least threshold for what you'd call consciousness. Mm -hmm. because that's when ethics would kick in. Yeah, um, yeah. How is that going in terms of criteria or, you know, metrics or, you know, what, wh how, where, where is that debate? Yeah, so um, uh, that is none, right? I mean, nobody was talking about that. Um, I uh, invited a group of uh, philosophers um, to discuss that issue. And we recently made a publication um, is one of my recent publications in PubMed, I think it was uh, two months ago, um, The uh, Ethics and Consciousness of Brain Organoids. I think that's that's the title, uh, where we provide a roadmap um, and a decision tree um, for investigators to actually checkpoint um, to see if we are uh, perhaps getting close to a, a conscious organoid. And, and of course, it's a it's a complex issue because I mean we don't even agree on what consciousness is, um, but we provide a couple of experiments based on um, certain consciousness consciousness theories that will indicate that the organoids are reaching a level of self-aware. Uh, one of them, for example, if we treat these uh, organoids with anesthetics and if these oscillations goes away, um, that's a that's a good indication that they are doing the same way as a conscious brain does, um, because when we go under anesthesia, our oscillations uh, disappear. Um, so, to, I mean, doing experiments that way um, might, might be an indication. We'll never prove that the organoids are conscious because they can never tell you. Um, but uh, you build it up evidence that they might get into a, a level where um, it's similar to the human brain. Well, now I could see that might call it early if, you know, if these theta waves or if these brain waves are, you know, from the earliest oscillations and, you know, once you get synchronous firing or, you know, or, or, or not, maybe is that, is, <laughs> is that when the trouble begins? Um, that's kind of a curious thing. You know, when do you call it? Mm. Yeah. Hey, David, I saw you joining the stage. Do you have a question you would like to ask? Oh, I was going to uh, just reference that if you could split your consciousness to maybe clone, clone it for productivity reasons, what about the ability to 
have multiple consciousnesses that can be selectively turned off because of trauma mm -hmm. just as an idea yeah yeah um yeah uh yeah these are you you guys are are, are very creative um I, I am enjoying this you're giving me more and more ideas <laughs> i could see a startup in a few years having a tamagotchi organoid pet an actual brain you can grow in your pocket <laughs> all sorts of crazy stuff very fascinating i love when uh science fiction becomes science fact and uh like one of the uh i was at a, a charity dinner once sat next to uh, uh, a doctor who worked at uh, children's hospital and uh I was talking to him about some advances with some sensors and he said, you know, that sounds like science fiction. And then he stopped himself and he said, you know what? Half the stuff in my lab sounded like science fiction 20 years ago. So it's, it's really awesome that uh, you came to share all, all this with us. Very much appreciate it. Super. Um, and, and, and guys, uh, I'm seeing the time and I, I really have to, to leave now, uh, to my family, but it's been like a pleasure to, to talk to you, uh, very nice and thanks katerina again for, for the invitation oh, if you, if you, if you yeah, don't mind, doctor i have a, a question for you please uh i think well, awesome what he he gave us a lot of time and we're really thankful and hopefully he'll come back um i will try my best I can just say people, speakers that come back get from us a surprise gift. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you gave us um, the best gift. You know, you shared your time and your knowledge, uh, which is the most precious one. And um, yeah, thank you so much. I wish you, I know you got a lot of funding. I wish you even more so you can do all the projects I'm imagining. <laughs> <laughs> And please update us. And it was wonderful that you came. Thank you so much. Absolutely. We'll keep in touch. Um, thank, thank you, everyone. You. Uh, appreciate all the questions. Yeah, fa fascinating Thanks. work. Thanks. And uh, look forward to your return. Thanks. Yeah, and thank you, everyone, for asking really great questions and for participating in the discussion. This was so much fun. Um, and uh, please come back if you like talks like this and discussions like this. I can promise that it will be, you know, the speaker that comes next <laughs> will have a hard follow. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. No, it's, uh, we'll have tomorrow um, MD, PhD um, student um, Zuniga. She will talk about Alzheimer's, tau topathies um, and how they depend on RNA surveillance. So um, it's a really interesting talk and she did a wonderful research um, that she recently published. So um, um, it's really interesting. And then on Friday, we have an afternoon talk at 5 p.m. EST with Dr. Henry and he will talk um, about his thermophotovoltaic um, devices that he developed and um, that they reach an efficiency of 40%, which is quite high. So will be a really interesting talk. And then next week we'll have <clears throat> more guest speakers talking about pain perception 
and uh, individualized um, TMS treatment um, for mental health disorders and massive gravitons dark matter. Are there good dark matter candidates? And BCI for decoding speech. I don't know if you heard about this in the news, but it was uh, really um, mentioned a lot out in the science news, um, this research where they could basically have um, somebody <clears throat> with a basically a locked-in syndrome um, speak again and a paralyzed person. So yeah, join us again, follow the club. And um, thank you again, special thanks to Alison. It was wonderful, um, epic night. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks everyone. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone.